0: national security this week a weekly look at issues that affect american national security national security this week is sponsored by the cyber security summit which is meeting this year from october 24th to the 26th at the double tree hotel in bloomington minnesota and now your host john olson good
1: morning everyone welcome to national Security. i'm your host john olson i'm really glad you joined us today Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we get together to discuss national security. We're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. I do want to thank our sponsor, the Cybersecurity Summit. Uh, You can find out more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. We're going to jump into our topic for today. On February 1st of 2021, the Burmese military staged a military coup. Toppling the the democratically elected government of the nation of Myanmar Nobel laureate and Myanmar state counselor Da Aung San Suu Kyi And President Yu Win Mint were arrested Along with numerous members of the cabinet and members of parliament The military junta has carried out much more violent repression Against the various ethnic groups in the nation And has jailed, tried and convicted numerous democracy activists And former office holders under the previous civilian government It has been launching Syrian-style air bombing and burning down villages, especially in the northwest part of Myanmar and other ethnic areas. Both the People's Republic of China and Russia have provided significant aid to the military junta, and that presents some difficult national security conundrums for the United States, for our allies and our friends in the region, and also for ASEAN. Joining us today to provide an update on the situation in Myanmar is Professor Tun Mint, Professor Mint was on the air with us back in April of 2021 to provide background on Myanmar and to discuss the first few months under the new military junta's rule. I recommend you look at the archive of our shows and that you listen to that previous show. Professor Mint provided a wealth of knowledge to help you to better understand the complex political, economic, social, and security environment that has been created for Myanmar uh, over a number of decades. Tuna is a professor of uh, political science at Carleton College, and he currently chairs the department. In the 1988 democracy movement in Myanmar, Toon Mint served as a student leader and he remains a widely respected expert on the politics and society of the country as well as a key advisor to the democracy movement inside Myanmar. Professor Mint is a founder and member of the editorial board of the Independent Journal of Burmese Scholarship, director of the Public Memory of Myanmar Digital Archive, and has contributed expert analysis on Burmese politics for many media outlets. Toon Mint is co-founder of Mutual Aid Myanmar, a non-profit organization that supports the civil disobedience movement led by doctors and nurses in the early days of the coup and growing as a national movement in which civil servants are walking out of the office against the military council. Mutual Aid Myanmar has raised over $1 million from individual global donors who care about the fate of democracies against autocracies. Professor Thunman, welcome back to National Security This Week. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, so, to, maybe we should start with uh, just sort of an update for our listeners. Uh, you were here, you know, back in April of last year. We had an initial discussion about this. What's the current situation in Myanmar?
2: The current situation is, is twofold. One is a geopolitical international, and the second is domestic uh, situation. So in domestic uh, political condition now, the people defense forces which uh, basically were graduated from protests on the street in the early days of the coup. Now they are holding arms and fighting against uh, Myanmar military, and especially northwest uh, region of the country that you mentioned, in, uh, where the Myanmar military is responding with Syrian style, bombing and burning down the villages and so on. So that's domestic situation. And that situation is quite uh, unique in the sense uh, the the people of the country, 50 million, 55 million people of the country are fighting against its own military that is holding this sovereign sort of position, yet is violating sovereign, the responsibility of sovereignty itself. Okay. And so in that situation, the protest, the, the CD, say CDM movement, uh, the protest, and also the ethnic Uh, revolutionary organization and the People defense forces, which are mainly led by Generation Z and ethnic uh, arms armies in Myanmar, which has been fighting for over 73 years. So this 19 months now into 20 months of Brazilian uh, revolution is making sure the, the military coup leaders could not finish and complete the coup. And so they could not even function like a typical coup government, let alone civilian-like-type peaceful government okay. uh, in Myanmar. So that that's a domestic situation. Second is uh, Russia and China, as you put it, is now uh, pouring all out their resources behind. Uh, Russia has geopolitical reason. China has economic investment and security of their business reason. So those are the two where it stands now. We can unpack further if you like to.
1: Uh, yeah, I, w- I would actually like to follow up a little bit on that. So... Uh, you mentioned sort of that the Burmese military the military junta is really using sort of these Syrian style of tactics are they being advised do we think by the Russians on on those uh, those kinds of tactics
2: I think it's not only advised but also some of the Russian Air Force pilots oh really were uh, commanding Burmese planes uh, when they were bombing the ethnic Korean area and about uh, I guess about three months ago, uh, you know, Thai media reported as uh, they spotted through the radio, uh, radar in a Thai military site mm-hmm. monitoring the airplanes. Yeah. They found Russian pilots who was co-piloting with Burmese or uh, uh, just individually. So Russia is not only training Myanmar Air Force, not only supplying second-hand Myanmar Air Force equipments, uh, but also uh physically intervening into the situation in Myanmar which uh, which is really uh, uh, important in terms of how Russia is Balancing its ads in global geopolitical games of steering Conflict around the world, supporting it and then uh, Making enemy pay the cost of you know or making its rivals like especially United States and other open Democracy pay the cost of it, basically imposing cost on democracy. Yeah. To to with the march, on, uh, with their own political um, ambition and autocracy here. And
1: then you mentioned that uh, you know the fighting that's going on in different parts of the country. Uh, as I understand it, and we've had conversations about this in the past. Uh, the different ethnic groups may not have been united, but now they really are united, and they're, they're really fighting together against the military junta. Is that right?
2: Yes, and the entire country, the population, and including ethnic revolutionary organizations, are quite united under the theme of getting rid of Bung which is mean common enemy, and Bung is in Burmese. And common enemy now is the military dictatorship. Okay. However, there's a China... Is playing uh, quite an interesting game here. There's an ethnic group in the northeast uh, uh, side of uh, northern side of Xi'an State, which is northeast of Burma. Uh, Wa ethnic group, uh, ethnic this Wa ethnic group uh, share population half of them in China and mm. half of them live in uh, Myanmar. This is border ethnic group, and this group is uh, demanding that they should have a state like their own autonomous state inside Myanmar, which will be. Uh, and historically, very unusual. And China is supporting the demand. And that's one. Second is the where uh, northwest and uh, southwest, sorry, uh, southwest uh, uh, corner of Myanmar, which is where uh, Rakhine um, mm-hmm. State, where the Rohingya crisis happened in northern Rakhine. Mm-hmm. And Rakhine State, the uh, Arakan uh, Army, AA is also working closely with China in terms of getting their uh, supplies uh, from, uh, from China and others. So I think this uh, southwest corner of Myanmar and northeast corner of Myanmar, if you draw the line where China is going, it's the Indian Ocean. Right. And so this game uh, that China is in imposing on Myanmar's uh, ethnic conflict is a, a newer game. Uh, in, in a relatively politically uh, fragile uh, society, uh, which is uh, fragile in a sense of deep into because the 73 years of civil war in Myanmar is the longest civil war in mm. the world. So China is playing a very interesting political and economic game as opposed to Russia, which is playing geopolitical game against the West here. Uh,
1: more short-term uh, approach on the Russians uh, than the long-term approach by the Chinese.
2: Is correct okay. uh, if you take it that way. Yes.
1: Let's drill down into that a little bit more in, in a little bit uh, for our audience. You're listening to National Security this week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Toon Mint, and we're discussing the current situation in Myanmar, formerly known as Burma. Our show is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, which meets this year from October 24th to the 26th in Bloomington, Minnesota. Uh, Tun, let's let's talk specifically about the military junta. How much control, actual control, do they have? Uh, over the nation right now, are, are they succeeding in recruiting or conscripting more soldiers to maintain military control over the nation? I, I have to think there's a lot of resistance to the to the military's conscription uh, efforts. Can you talk a little bit about that? How, how do they stay in power? I mean, how do they continue to get manpower to carry out these military operations?
2: Yes, that's a great question. Um, in July, I had a uh, workshop in Thai-Burma border area with the defected soldiers from Yama military. They defected after the coup, and according to their internal inside operation, I will start with recruitment. Okay. Uh, recruitment is almost like zero now, and they are bribing people to pay uh, to, to be uh, unofficially officially recruiting. And so, if you can recruit five soldiers. Uh, for a training, you get uh, 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 seventy-five thousand uh, uh, worth of Myanmar jad for one soldier you recruit, and so you can calculate. So these kind of uh, uh, recruitment were reported in that workshop by some of the people who were working in those recruitment division. Okay, uh, and uh, so and then the recent uh, enrollment to the cadet, military cadet uh, schools was zero last two years now. In in twenty months, uh, we have learned. And so recruitment is really uh, down. Defection is increasing. About 10,000 soldiers have defected to the revolution. And so that's one. And then the other area, the Myanmar military is uh, uh, trying to stay in power, is the um, cronies uh, and the paid, uh, if you will, thugs, uh, or what in Myanmar call called as It's a group that's not the military, but paramilitary, created by the army, okay. and, and they will be in civilian uniform, and they were also the one who were reportedly responsible for beating up uh, uh, a series of lines of cars uh, uh, led by Aung San Suu Kyi in 2003. She was there almost assassinated in that in the town of Deepayan. Uh, so this group is now re-mobilized uh, by the Myanmar military uh, and military intelligence. Uh, which are connected to the uh, Union Solidarity Development Party, USDP, which is also former military man running the political party. So they, they are now trying to sort of stir things up by creating robberies, thieves, and very unstable situation for population that is, you know, peacefully living in their homes and things like that. So that mobilized, that's a payment. Basically, they get paid for doing what they, they, are, they are doing by the military. So cronies, uh, which are supporting the military, to get gold mines and permits in the forest and then other uh, natural resources including rare earth material mining in Kachin State in northern Myanmar. Okay. Uh, they were all kind of basically facilitating that kind of uh, seeing in power for Myanmar military. So the cronies who are in the almost like a, what you may call it dark economy who operate within that uh, are also behind this Myanmar military. So in terms of financing, uh, I think China and Singapore uh, play a critical role here, and Hong Kong maybe, the other area. And the other is a Belarus and Russian East, uh, Eastern Economic Cooperation, which is five countries, Russia-led. Uh, so these are very global structure to the local structure that you have in, in terms of financing. This is how military is surviving uh, at the moment, with the support from Russia, with the support from China.
1: And, and I do want to follow up more on that uh, the regional challenges uh Uh, uh, around Myanmar but uh, just to see if I can summarize what you just said there's actually a paramilitary structure that has been reformed that's supported by the military junta that's uh, almost guided not necessarily directly by the junta but in some ways yes by the junta but it's also you have a lot of financial support for the military junta from the people who are getting rich very quickly because they're they're patrons to the military hunter, so they get all the financial benefits, the mines, the logging, all those kinds of things. Is that is that a good summary?
2: That is a very good summary. Just there's a one more post yeah. to to pivot to to put it is a nationalist Buddhist monks. Ah. Uh so these monks are also a part of this uh this Bussorti, uh, uh spiritual side of their uh, their structure if you will so and they're s- getting a lot so of support they're got, getting a lot of support and they are also the one that at forefront of anti-rohingya campaign uh, in Myanmar because these uh, rohingyas are islamic uh, p- uh, community members and so the buddhist extremist buddhist uh, monks and community on sangha uh, also support uh, military's attempt to clean it up which is quote unquote the term they use clean up campaign against rohingya that's why you saw in 2017 yeah Within a week, or nearly one million people had to flee. So that is another spiritual opponent. So you got the money, you got spiritual uh, foundation, and you have here uh, the the other the paramilitary group, which is revitalized uh, since that 2012 era. Uh, That has that group existed now. Pusati is the one that I'm referring to. That's military led civilian arms uh is, is not formal not official yeah. but they do think that whatever military need to stay in power to like support a, it like a militia as we would Militial, understand a paramilitary yeah, it, militia, it's so. hard to really define right. this group
1: <laughs> <laughs> fair enough uh, you know i have to admit that i'm i'm a little confused because i under i understood that the uh, buddhism buddhist monks were very peaceful at heart uh, that is traditionally the way it's been interpreted but from what i'm hearing from you It's very, very different amongst this uh, nationalist group of uh, Buddhist monks in in Myanmar.
2: Yes. Uh, I mean, in theory and philosophy and teaching of Buddhism, it's very peaceful. However, the authoritarian in anywhere or dictators in anywhere would utilize religion to basically uh, structure their own spiritual foundation of their power. So... In several reports uh, indicate that some of the monks are basically military intelligence who are just wearing uh, the orange robes and uh, pretending to be uh, basically, uh, to, to use crudely, to be a monks in Myanmar. And they are basically uh, working for the uh, military MIS, military in intelligence services and, uh, and other political and economic interests. And so not all mon- monks in Myanmar are really monks, even though they might be wearing uh, orange robe and pretending to be uh, a monk. So within the Sangha in Myanmar, there is is a a significant uh, split between staying uh, with the original teaching of Buddha uh, being peaceful, kind, harmonious society, uh, promoting ecology and society type. And then the other who are bas- basically politically exploited. Uh, in it. So when you are uh, exploited m- monks from your mom military and cronies, you have uh, bigger temples and you have a flat panel TVs and massity bins for you and the best cars and everything, the people, quote unquote, donate them. Uh, that donation come with the price for those monks to work for the sake of uh, military dictatorship continuing to function in Myanmar. So it's really, anthropolog- anthropologically speaking, this is a very interesting arena or field to study. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of study how religion has been used in political establishment, but this is a kind of unique in in the sense, in the modern sense of uh, usage of religion in I, Myanmar.
1: I, I got to tell you, too, I, I mean, I'm... I spent twenty five years dealing with national security issues while I was in the Navy. I've been teaching it for a decade. I have never heard a, a, a situation as complex as the one that you just laid out for us. I mean it is a really turns everything on its head about how you understand things function typically in a in any country around the world.
2: Now but, you can appreciate seventy three years of civil right, war right. in Yemen, right? Myanmar, right? Yeah. The longest one in the world.
1: Oof. So there is, a, a, as you have mentioned, a well-organized unity government that's uh, working feverishly to defeat the military junta and to restore the foundations of uh, democratic governance uh, back to Myanmar. Uh, can you tell our listeners more about that democracy movement uh, in, inside and even outside Myanmar? Uh, how are they organized? Who are the members? What, what is it that they seek to achieve maybe in the near term and, and over the long term, uh, specifically with their resistance uh, to the junta?
2: Yeah, it's a multifaceted uh, diamond. Dynamic uh, revolution in Myanmar, uh, sustained by strike committee Myanmar uh, inside Myanmar, where they continue to organize protests, even if it's small, uh, villages and towns, con- in- including capital Yangon. And strike these are committee.
1: peaceful protests. These
2: are peaceful protests. Yeah. And second is a CDM, several disobedient Movement that you mentioned, earlier So several Disobedience Movement. Uh, people participants are government workers who are working out of their offices and so mutual that Myanmar co- I co-founded fund them for okay. their food shelter, medicine and so on and that's the a sec- a second. The third is ethnic arms organization or now ethnic revolutionary organization they are also sustaining their own locality plus training some of the People defense forces, which wow. is coordinating with ethnic um, organization and people defense forces. People defense forces are mainly former protest, peaceful protester, decided to take um, arms up against this uh, military council. So that's that's uh, the, the 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 third people of it, and the the other the fourth one is national unity government, which is composed of members of parliament elected on November 8, 2020 election. And so that was nullified on, by the coup on February first, twenty 2021, and which was the day that National Parliament was going to hold at 9, a, uh, 9 a.m., at 3 a.m., military stage, a peaceful coup when members of parliament were sleeping in the their dormitory in the capital, Nebido. So this uh government national unity government is favorably uh viewed by the a lot of uh, global uh governments uh especially democracies and some of the countries in Southeast asia and asian countries as well meaning that they are testically working together day to day sort of practically and but officially they haven't made a, a statement or Declaration that they recognize national unity government as the official government of the people of Myanmar, which is the true statement because they were elected people, right? Yeah, and this government is the most diverse uh, political body that had emerged in the history of Myanmar. I mean, diverse, mean ethnic people, and also younger generation, and plus uh, female. Uh, politicians are actively engaging in this political process. So the United States is uh, recognizing, at least at the practical level, uh, talking with them, uh, sharing information, helping them out and all that. So hopefully uh, democracies, including the United States, will recognize this uh, national unity government as the government of Myanmar, and the people of Myanmar, and United Nations at the same time recognized permanent uh, ambassador of UN, 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 Myanmar ambassador to United Nations, permanent ambassador to United Nations, who was uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, Do Aung San Suu Kyi's representative to the UN. Now United Nations uh, continue to recognize him as a uh, ambassador of Myanmar, N- N- not the, the, the military ambassador hunter of the military-hunter <laughs> structure. So <laughs> yeah. that, that's another yeah. complex layer here, yeah. which is in, yeah, in, is in the IR, IR field.
1: <laughs> so is that uh, national unity government, uh, the people who were, in fact, democratically elected to various roles in the government and, and parliament, they are, are they, <clears> like, <throat> in exile? Have they fled the country so that they can continue to operate?
2: They are. Some of them are in liberated area, okay. within areas within Myanmar or Burma. Uh, mainly in Kachin, Shan, uh and also the Korean, mainly in Kachin and Korean, I I think, and also a western part of uh northwestern part of Myanmar. And and so, so yeah, so they and then some of them are in Europe, some of them are in the United States, some of them are in Thailand, okay. uh, and then maybe some maybe in Singapore. I don't know. I mean, they are all spread out, and this is basically national unity government of Myanmar globally located, <laughs> of everywhere, <laughs> and which is a, which is also one reason why the Burmese diaspora in all over the world uh, are actively uh, uh, engaging in funding and fundraising activities and things like that so this is a revolution that is defending democracy and also defending sovereignty a true sovereignty are we the people in 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 the world right yeah. and so unique in a sense this is the largest revolution in the history of all the revolution in terms of defending democracy in in a country yeah. so if democracies around the world actually mean that they are democratic and they want to protect democracy. Burma case is much more important case and significant case than supporting Ukraine, for instance. Mm. Right? And so this media, global media, tend to look over uh, this. It is in, in, in my analysis of the future of democracy and the future of sovereignty. Myanmar or Burma case right now is far more critical and important than the crisis in Ukraine. Yeah.
1: Uh, before we take a a, a short break here to this unity government that's sort of an exile spread around the world, they couldn't function uh, as effectively as they have been without the the power of technology, right?
2: true uh technology uh zoom parliament you might call it <laughs> and signal parliament or signal meetings meeting room through uh, the app signal yeah. uh so yes technology social media uh is a crit- critical for the national unity government to continue to drum up resources uh funding and also support from uh, global and they also have their own sort of uh, uh uh, people who are working on these social media uh, sites and like uh, health and um, education ministry, for instance, delivering uh, uh, Zoom classes to students inside Myanmar from their home if they have phone and internet connection and wow. VPN, they can attend those classes. And so. National unity government right now, actually, in terms of territorial control, back to the question you asked earlier, uh, reportedly now they're controlling nearly 75% of territory. Wow. And now put that in the perspective. Myanmar military members dare not shop in the community street shops with the uniform, right? And they, they dare not go out and shop or eat or drink tea at the tea shop. And so you can see how the population really do not want to see anymore the military wow. dictatorship uh, and now even the uniform they don't want to allow on the street
1: that is fascinating we have to take just a 60 second break
0: national security this week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity summit which is meeting this year from october 24th through the 26th at the double tree hotel in bloomington minnesota Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org.
1: Professor Tinman, let's let's go ahead and move back to the broader regional situation. Uh, you, you mentioned a few of the the challenges are around Myanmar, uh, China, and Russia specifically. But what are what are Myanmar's neighboring governments doing right now to to support the military junta? Uh, and we'll start with that, and then I'll ask you about what they're doing to support the unity government.
2: Yeah, uh, I think to to answer that question, we need to look at sort of geopolitical and all the geographical location of Burma, and Myanmar. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the location of Myanmar or Burma. Myanmar is sort of sandwiched between three regional powerful groups. One is India on the west, and then uh, north and northeast is China, and then southeast is Southeast Asian countries uh, association ASEAN. Yeah. Right. So within that triangle, Burma critically uh, is situated. It's critically in a means in a geopolitical and also economic. And also politic ethnic politic level okay. and uh, because Burma is the second most diverse country after Indonesia in terms of ethnicity and ethnic politics. Uh, so if you view that and India is sort of uh, also uh, led by the Hindu nationalist party and therefore they are quite sympathetic with nationalist theme of Myanmar military ah. and therefore they are not outright supporting democracy movement but they are kind of under the table. They have been at the second and third level leaders of Indian governments have been working with Myanmar military. And in fact, they are also facilitating some kind of arm trade and also financial flow, I think, through Central Asia and Russia, Uh, because Russia and Russian leader and uh, uh, Indian leaders are also somewhat uh, quite, you know, in a good term, I would say, if not too close. That's... uh, Point number one. Point yeah. number two. China, as I said, uh, two ethnic groups, uh, uh, Arakan and Wa, trying to connect the dot. Right now, they have physically already connected because it's gas pipeline from Arakan State to Yunnan Province It's already functioning, ah. flowing the gas. Right. So, but they need to do political and some some other detailed, sensitive local ground transnational work, if you will, and that is what China is uh, interested in. It's investment mainly. There are about 519 investment projects uh, led by China, which is the the largest uh, foreign just uh, in uh, Myanmar, just in Myanmar, 519, oh. uh, the largest investor in Singapore. But Singapore and Chinese sort of business wide connections uh, you have to treat it the same. They they work out anthropologically they are the same ethnic groups, and so they do that right. So that's a uh, uh, point number two. Number and, and number three is uh, within the ASEAN countries, ten nations. Uh, Indonesia, Malaysia are at the forefront of supporting democracy movement in Myanmar, especially Malaysia. You can connect the dot here, Rohingya crisis in the Western, which are Islamic community. They are very sympathetic with genocide uh, that United States designated and also Gambia government that brought the case to the International Court of Justice. I mean, that is Malaysia and Indonesia's position. The other uh, country, uh, uh, Philippines, is quite quiet because it's quite it can be because it's far, far away from the mainland South East Asia but Thailand is an interesting one Thailand itself is under the military but Thailand is also uh, used to be under the military for a long time in fact the country that in the world that has the most military coup if you count all the coups that's true and, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. so you You have a, Thailand Thai people are quite used to living under military or no military it doesn't yeah. matter for them and so now, currently, Thailand is under the military, and so Thai military and Myanmar military have some good relationship. And and at the same time, Thailand also being a friend of democracy, which is a friend of the United States, uh, go back all the way to 1939, in the, you know, big beginning of the monarchy there, uh, and Vietnam War and all that relationship that United States have constructed with Thailand. Yeah. Uh, so that relationship also... Uh, enable and also sort of unenable enable Thailand to completely all out go support military so Thailand is now supporting both Myanmar military and also at the same time democratic uh, revolution movement people who need to stay on Thai Burma border towns and Thailand and things like that so Thailand in that sense they kind of they have to uh, Thailand has to be carefully structuring their support in both sides in a very sensitive manner because they don't want to stir things up uh, f- uh, in their own country. So Thailand's... A, but Laos and Cambodia tend to be basically uh, quite quiet in terms of their political power, not saying anything. But Cambodia lately has been becoming more and more anti-military uh, as well because Cambodia being a chair, current chair of the ASEAN tried to do a lot of things and couldn't do and they learned something hard from uh, with the Myanmar relationship. So... Uh, it, it would be interesting where Cambodia would swing if China and United States begin to engage actively in there. Which way do, does, would it swing uh, to in terms of Myanmar politics? So this geopolitical situation and also location of the Burma uh, is critical. Here uh, with the Indo-Pacific uh, uh, equation, security equation for the United States, and also for democracy. This is a pretty important, I might say, the most important, even far more important than supporting Taiwan. If you are thinking of China's, if China has direct access to Indian Ocean, yeah. west of Malaysia and all of that, Southeast Asia, west of that area, territory control, and I'm talking about the water, Right. Uh, imagine what could... U.S. Navy ships uh, and Chinese Navy ships uh, uh, yeah. control each other and play the game here. China is very eyeing to that that level of control. Um, so with that, it is now constructing political economic path from the northeast of Myanmar to southwest of Myanmar. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, I find it uh, extremely disappointing that, you know, by population, the largest democracy in the world, India uh, is not uh, supporting the national unity government uh, openly. Uh, I mean, I would think, I mean, I understand the nationalism piece to this, but uh, that's that's very unfortunate. Um, I, how much pressure is ASEAN able to put on this situation? Are they, I mean, are they doing much in the way of, as a grouping of nations, are they working cl- support, to support the national unity government?
2: So as a grouping, uh, March of 2021, within a month of military coup in Myanmar, RCM put out what they call it five-point plans. Okay. Uh, five-point plan. And in that plan, uh, they, number one, started with all the violence uh, group have to stop, which at the time, the, the only group that was inducing violence was Myanmar military shooting and, and snipering uh, protester on the street and the police beating up and arresting and torturing and murdering uh, that was and ASEAN sort of ignore the the fat on the ground in Myanmar mm. and they could have just pointedly say Myanmar military must stop right? And instead of they're all groups that are engaging in violence. And so point number one, two was humanitarian aid and other other plans, humanitarian aid, sending Envoy uh, to amboy to Myanmar and negotiating peace and things like that. Those, uh, that pipeline plan went nowhere and so Malaysia is very fed up or not satisfying with that and so Malaysia is all out calling for recognition of national unity government as is the government of the people of Myanmar, which I think the democracies, including the United States, should follow seriously in uh, that lead. Uh, because ASEAN is incapable of functioning as an organization in crisis like Myanmar, for sure. Because yeah. it's not well organized like the European Union or NATO. Right. Uh, right? So ASEAN is a loose structure, sort of regional organization. And <clears throat> so, for that reason, excuse me, for that reason, um, the uh, Malaysia uh, and Indonesia basically decided, okay, we're not, we're going to go alone. And so they're doing coordinated action between Malaysia and Indonesia. And at this point, okay. they, their leadership is critical for so many arena of the world. One terrorism theme, all of that. If you go back to the post nine 11 and now Islamic countries are supporting democracy and mm-hmm. they themselves are struggling democracy and establishing democracy, right? Rising democracy in Saudi Asia. So if we care about democracy, uh, and people of the world, and the countries, democracies around the world, if we care about democracy. This is a, a huge uh, opportunity. It's it an yeah. ethically and morally sound political problem here to yeah. really to go in and all of support the Myanmar Spring Revolution. You
1: you, you, you paint a very complex uh, picture for us, uh, Professor uh, Thunmint. Uh, we, we have about uh, another 10 minutes or so uh, in our discussions today. Um, Let's talk about the the role the United States should be playing right now in helping to bring this uh, terrible tragedy to an end. What would what would you prefer to see the United States doing right now to to bring this to an end or to to assist with uh, bringing this to an end?
2: In the ideal world and in the ideal international relations theoretical uh, driven world, uh, United States should the Spring Revolution a right and in fact, uh, also in terms of material support to the people of defense forces in Myanmar okay. because they are defending democracy. They are defending the uh, election outcome of November 8, 2020, which is probably more democratic outcome than United States uh, election in 2020. So hypothetically, imagine this. Um, January Six insurrection at the U.S. Capitol was successful. Imagine that President Biden now, or Biden and Harris, now are in prison in the United States. All the members of Congress are arrested or tortured to death, or some of them fled to Canada and Mexico. And they now run as a national unity government of the United States from those countries. And then the towns in the United States, the protests continue soon. Those protesters were arrested, tortured to death. And plus, all the towns like Northfield, Lonsdale's, Rochester, all of these towns around the nation in the United States are being bombed. Houses are burned down. What would the United States citizen be doing? Yeah. And this hypothetical question is a real question, life, uh, real world, real life, real time, daily question for Myanmar. People and yeah. so the citizens of Myanmar basically are defending that democratic election outcome and holding up our, uh, our arms against Myanmar military, which is unjustly uh, using air force to bomb small villages and homes and uh, attacking
1: civilians, literally
2: eat, not only civilians but also attacking schools, uh, bombing schools. Last, uh, three weeks ago, uh, one schools in, in central Myanmar was bombed. Eleven children. Uh, ranging from age of five to 11 were killed. So uh, imagine that if they were, that were happening in the United States as an outcome, hypothetical outcome of January 6th insurrection. So Myanmar people are facing exactly the practical, uh, non-hypothetical situation there. Uh, so if you flip that, uh, this is a how important, how meaningful. Uh, a democracy movement in Myanmar is, yeah. and so United States Congress should do all out if they could make laws and to support the democracy movement. National work with the national unity government, recognize it as a uh, democratic government of Myanmar because yeah. it's a democratically elected, more democratic than the 2020 election, Biden's election, right? The Biden, the one that the Democratic Party won here, mm-hmm. so. That is my uh, uh, basically the idea wall. That would be what, but in daily politics, you're dealing with all the elements that we laid out: Uh, China's uh, position, uh, and India, and Southeast Asian countries split uh, and uh, the situation. (laughs) Russia is now geopolitically maneuvering it. So you got all kinds of. Uh, cronies and and dark money. We don't know how much Myanmar cronies are connected to Russian oligarchs in terms of financing and uh, offshore uh, financing network that they have, all of that. So these are kind of things that in day-to-day you got to calculate. And you have now Indo-Pacific territorial dispute in South China Sea and then Taiwan issue, right? So in real world uh, in a non-ideal sort of real-world day-to-day politic, you're dealing with so many issues. But even if you calculate Myanmar's situation within that framework, we have to, I have to say uh, the democracy movement in Myanmar, both uh, in terms of the future of democracy and the future of the rise of autocracy and populism around the world, Myanmar case deserves far more support than the case in Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine case uh, it, it is a kind of, uh, in terms of defending democracy and defending the sovereignty of the people of, we the people of a country, Myanmar case await Ukraine case in terms of deserving.
1: Yeah, when you paint it in those pictures in that in that in that way, I mean, you look at the the Ukraine situation. It's really uh, Ukraine and Russia, and then it's you know the NATO slash EU nations sort of standing against Russia's uh, aggression in Ukraine. When you talk about Myanmar, you have so many other. Uh, threat vectors, basically, that are that you're dealing with, with regards to who's trying to influence the situation in Myanmar, are they backing the military junta? Or are they backing the National Unity Government? Uh, where you have India, Russia, China, all the ASEAN nations. I mean, there's a lot. It's a it's become sort of a proxy fight for the future of is it going to be democracy or autocracy? Uh, you mentioned that, and I and honestly, Tuan, that's a that's a tremendous lead-in for the, the next question I want to ask you before we close out the show today. I know the Department of Political Science at Carleton College is hosting a no- number of academic panels this year, open to the public, right? Is that
2: right? Yes, open to the public.
1: And they're focused on the struggle between authoritarianism and democracy. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about those panels, maybe dates and topics and who the panelists will be?
2: Yes, so we are in a trimester system. Uh, the Department of Political Science designated the entire year to be devoted to autocracy, autocracy versus democracy theme, uh, basically uh, deconstructing the threat to democracy at home in the United States and uh, around the world, and what is the future of freedom uh, for individuals and communities around the world, mm-hmm. regardless of who you are, what identity you have. So uh, with that, uh, October 27th, uh, Thursday, We will have a panel of four uh, of my colleagues. uh, 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 Barbara Allen, who is a professor of political science, who is expert on United States politics, American politics. Uh, She will be digesting uh, the uh, January 6th uh, insurrection and thereafter. And then we have Professor Dev Gupta who is a national uh, the uh, the, uh, the specialist on social movement and nationalism around the world and and so she'll be uh, speaking uh, how that populist movement, social movement, and the nationalism are playing out with uh, state and sovereignty and things like that. And then we have Professor uh, Krishna Fahad, who is a specialist on misinformation, fake news, and so on, social media, and uh, public opinion, uh, sort of influencing public opinion. She will be also dissecting that through the January 6th and fake news and all of that and how democracy is being challenged by the rise of social media platforms around the world, not just in the United States. And I will be speaking uh uh, on the challenge of whether we might be asked now question out into the post globalization era if i can use that uh whether democracy or sovereignty will be protected in the future of this world order uh sovereignty which is the treaty of westphalia and westphalian order has been sort of championing uh, champion uh uh, 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 a keynote in international relation now would democracy take over because Around the world, sovereign itself are violating their own responsibilities and uh, abusing human rights and, and causing genocides and all that uh, around the world, including in China with the Uyghur's problem, right? Right, right. Uh, which will be comparable to Rohingya and Myanmar problem. Yeah, yeah. So I think the challenge of global order, uh, whether to protect sovereignty or whether to protect democracy might be a question that is rising right now as, as we speak
1: yeah and and i I like to remind uh, people when I talk to them about you know the situation we face in the world today uh, up until the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think you know most most of us who study uh, international relations uh those of us who serve in the national security arena we fully recognize that there was a strong competition that has that had started between the liberal democracies of the world and these rising autocratic uh, nations and their challenge of the global system. And after the Russians invaded uh, Ukraine, it, was, it wasn't below the table anymore. It was, it was right there <laughs> for everybody of, to see. It was in out center of the table, on the table. Yes. So mm-hmm. that fight is uh, incredibly important, and it's uh, something that has swallowed up uh, you know all of the members of your country in Myanmar. Uh, they're right in the middle of this struggle.
2: Yes, and so in the winter term at Carlton, we'll be actually looking at China, Eastern Europe, by uh, 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 four of our colleagues, and then Latin America, and especially how China's relationship to Africa, Latin America, and and Europe might shape up this game of democracy versus autocracy or autocracy versus democracy. That's in the winter. In the spring, we have Professor Greg Muffley, and uh, you yourself will be running a simulation on war games and other competitive, uh, competitive sort of the political games that is uh, 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 unfolding in Asia-Pacific and Indo-Pacific region. Yeah. So those three uh, panels that we uh, at, of, at the Department of Political Science at Carlton uh, are devoted to democracy versus autocracy theme. And our students are, uh, through the classes and discussions and panels and public events, we are deconstructing this issue.
1: Uh, Tune if it's okay with you uh, on future shows. I'd like to just remind our listeners that those uh, panels are available in the winter, in the fall and, and winter terms, uh, and I'll I'll let them know where where they can go if they'd like to go sit in and listen to what the professors have to say.
2: Yes, it will be in the Department of Political Science. I think we have now facility enough to hold a big public event, all uh right. classroom. So it will be all there. Uh winter date and spring date. I think spring I think you were doing on May 17, I yeah, believe, yeah, right? That's right? Uh winter date has not been designated yet for my colleagues that is deciding which date they okay. would Probably well, I'll let important. our
1: I'll let our listeners know when we've got those dates locked in.
2: Yes, thank you, Professor Toonman, Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Uh, we're going to shift over and talk to our uh, sponsor for a little bit for the rest of this uh, show. But really, thank you for coming in.
2: Thank you for having me, and thank you for uh, sharing the information about Myanmar's crisis uh, with the with the people in the United States. Well, maybe in we'll have
1: you on again to have another update, depending upon how things are shaking out uh, in the future. Thank you. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Tumin. Have a nice day. And Eileen Manning is joining us now. Eileen is a co-founder of uh, the Cybersecurity Summit. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about the Cybersecurity Summit, Eileen?
3: Absolutely. This is our 12th year for the Cybersecurity Summit. It's built by cybersecurity professionals for cybersecurity professionals. Um, We have people coming from um, around the world to attend this. Uh, It was an event that was actually built for Minnesota. Because Minnesota is so uh, critical to our national infrastructure with all 16 critical infrastructure uh, headquarters based here, and with so many healthcare and medical device companies and so many Fortune 500 companies, more Fortune 500 companies per capita than anywhere else in the country. So we knew that when the cyber attacks were really going to start happening, that Minnesota was going to be critical to the global security issue. So that's why the summit was built here for Minnesota. And and where is
1: it taking place this year, the dates and location? It's going
3: to be at the Devil Tree South, which is right on 494 and 100, uh, the old Radisson. Uh, It's going to be October 24th, 25th, and 26th. So it's three days of programming, over 135 speakers from around the world.
1: And you cover, uh, is it sort of cybersecurity for for government at all levels, from municipalities through counties, states, and federal level? Uh, It's the business community, uh, maybe the nonprofit community. Do you talk a little bit about the academic uh, communities as well? They're all, all included?
3: Well, so when we started this summit... 12 years ago, uh, the technological leadership Institute at the university of Minnesota said this is, it's really, really important that we have both the private and the public sectors coming together to collaborate. So there is stuff for everything. We have a full day public sector track. Okay. So if you're from the city of golden Valley or Blaine or, you know, wherever you are around the country and you need, you're challenged by how do I talk to our, um, citizens about you know with the fact that we need to budget for cybersecurity. Yeah. How, how do we make that argument when we need uh, x million dollars a year for, to to plow the streets of snow i mean right, right, <laughs> yeah, right. you know yeah. it's, it's a balancing act yeah. um and so that this there's that public sector session is for you because it talks about the new cisa grants and what's out there for communities to get in regards to cybersecurity funding uh it and it's bringing together um People from the public sector f- from around the country for that day, but that's so that's a public sector track. There's also a healthcare medical device track. You know, we have we have these amazing leaders in healthcare like Optum and Medtronic. They come together and they co-chair this event and they pull in people from. Um, Boston Scientific and Mayo Clinic and Abbott Labs and all these other amazing organizations to come together and share what their experiences are in regards to protecting the medical devices in the healthcare industry. So you're going to hear from leaders in healthcare medical device. So if you're a small medical device manufacturer and you need to be thoughtful of what kind of cybersecurity you're putting on? You know, security you're putting on your medical device. This is a great session for you to come uh, to, or if you're um, running a hospital and are concerned about ransomware. You right. Know? Yeah, I was yeah. just
1: thinking the same thing as you mentioned both the medical side and the public sector side is the ransomware. I, We've seen instances of that all around the country.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. And We'll be talking about that. So we have on Monday at the summit we have a public sector day. We have an industrial controls day. So there's so many devices that are out there that are all legacy devices and how do we build security into manufacturing, et cetera. So there's Industrial Controls Day, there's um and there's um oh, and then there's also a full day of women in cybersecurity. Okay. Building diversity in this workforce is really important to us. And I am very proud of the fact that I think we have probably the most diverse uh, diverse in every way, from from age to ethnicity to topic, subject experts um, at the summit with over 135 speakers coming from all over. So we're we're really big on the diversity issue and helping people um, ag- advance in their career in cybersecurity, but also for those people that are considering pivoting from maybe. Um, technical field into cybersecurity. There's all sorts of sessions for you to, for you to come and explore a career in cybersecurity. There's also, um, Monday is a full day of technical tracks where there's a variety of complimentary sessions on all sorts for the practitioner on all sorts of issues around cybersecurity. Um, so we have just, uh, there's over 50 programs going on just on Monday alone. Something for everybody. Um, But those are mainly for, like you said, public sector communities and the corporate people. Uh, And then Tuesday and Wednesday is our full summit. That's when the senior leaders come together and we bring in the experts. We have the deputy director from CISA coming in. We have Beth Sanner, who has been advising the president of the United States for the last four years on everything security. And she's going to be talking about how the nation states are weaponizing cybersecurity and what we need to be concerned about there.
1: And we'll actually be doing a, a remote broadcast from the Cybersecurity Summit on Wednesday the 26th. And I'll offer national security this week. And my host will, or my guest will be Beth Sander. As a matter of fact, so, yeah, she'll
3: be in a fascinating interview. Yeah. Her her experiences are just amazing, um, and that's the kind of uh, that's the kind of people that we bring in. We bring in experts from all over that have seen all sorts of things, and they're willing to sit down and share with us. So so that we go into things with our eyes wide open, and that's the theme of this year's summit: is eyes wide open. Right. But also on Tuesday we offer a small business uh, cybersecurity session, right. and the SBA and the SBDC and CISA and Department of Homeland Security uh, and a variety of others all come together and put on this half day of programming. It, that is free to virtually attend for small business owners, uh, small and medium business owners, and. And it's twenty nine dollars if you want to attend in person, and that includes you know being there and networking reception with solution strategy providers at the end of the day. So we try to provide a lot. There's a lot of scholarships available for students. Um, so we we really try to provide a, a wide range of issues around this ever increasing. Topic of concern. I
1: have to imagine that you've reached out to all the chambers of commerce around the state of Minnesota to let them know about this great opportunity for their small business owners.
3: You know what? We are still a small marketing team, and so thank you for mentioning that. So, if you're a chamber of commerce out there listening, please, yes, please promote this. It's www. cybersecuritysummit. dot org. org. So, yeah, we we. Can use all the help we can get in in spreading the world word about this incredible event that's happening in your backyard.
1: Yeah, you, I think you you uh, you framed it perfectly the importance of cyber and cybersecurity and understanding this uh, this you know advancing technology. It changes so fast. Um, if there are academics out there listening to this show who who hear this, uh, I, the state of Minnesota we one of the I think we're one of the le- the least uh, invested in uh, computer science courses for kids in gra- grade school, junior high, and high school. Uh, is there something that the Cybersecurity Summit is hopefully maybe working on for the future to get that investment into our education system in the state of Minnesota?
3: You know, uh, I've done a lot of different sessions with the students, and it's, it's fascinating. We did something at the Science Museum a couple of years ago. Um, where we brought in students from like ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade to expose them to a career in cybersecurity. And I am blown away at how uh, some of the questions that I've gotten from some of these young minds about cyber. And we have to, we have to get them exposed at an early age. Um, mm-hmm. Into into cyber as a as to consider it as a career. It's a great career to get into. Uh, it's a career that's going to be around for a long time, and you're going to have job security. And you you graduate, and it's it's a high paying job as well. So it's a great cons- career to consider. Is there anything
1: else uh, you'd like our listeners to know about the Cybersecurity Summit?
3: Well, you mentioned the academics. You know, we do have scholarships available. While Minnesota. Um, you mentioned uh, hasn't done a lot. To, uh, we have we need a lot more programming going on um, there. Uh, the state of Minnesota does step up and they they ha- help to underwrite some student scholarships mm-hmm. for the summit. So we've got scholarships for all the different universities for students to come and and participate because we want to shape those young minds now and start having them helping them think about how they need to think as a as a visionary leader in the future.
1: And Eileen Manning, one more time. Uh, wh- where is the cybersecurity summit taking place again this year? It
3: is taking place at the DoubleTree uh, Hilton on four ninety four and a hundred. It's Normandale Boulevard. And there's just one more thing I just yep. remembered yep. to to plug in. So if you're anybody working in the field of cybersecurity, on Tuesday evening at the summit, we have the Visionary Leadership Awards Dinner. And this is going to be an amazing event this year because we want to honor everyone working in the field of cybersecurity, not just the honorees that, that we're going to be recognizing that, that that evening. But in our mind, anyone who is working in cybersecurity is, is one of our cyber heroes. And so therefore, I've connected with a legendary rock star. His name is Dominic Allen. He was part of the rock group Foreign traveled around the world with foreigner. And he is coming to the summit on Tuesday evening, October 25th. And he is going to help us rock out. All right. <laughs> uh, he has built out uh, a custom program just for our, for our cyber heroes. And, um, it, Custom songs, our theme. I said, his eyes wide open. He's got a custom song for the for that. He's he's put together an entire uh, program for the evening, and it's going to be a just. It's a wonderful way to network with the cybersecurity community, and it's a wonderful way to to have a fun evening.
1: Yeah, and and where again the the website where people can find all this information.
3: www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Cybersecuritysummit.org. All right.
1: Eileen Manning, co-founder of the Cybersecurity Summit, I want to thank you personally for stepping in and uh, sponsoring National Security this week for the next year.
3: Well, thank you. It's national security is is of utmost critical importance. So uh, the summit is honored to to be a sponsor of this. So thank you, John.
1: Thank you, Eileen. And then, folks, that does it for today's show. Uh, this is National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to our show again next Wednesday morning. Our our guest next week as a matter of fact will be Mr. John Darby who recently retired as the Director of Operations for the National Security Agency. You're absolutely going to want to tune into that show. It's going to be fascinating. We will talk about cyber issues next Wednesday, as a matter of fact. Uh, If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to cover on this show, please contact KYMN Radio, and I will find experts who can join us to address your topic. Uh, Thanks again to our sponsor, Cybersecurity Summit. You can find out more about the 12th Annual Summit happening this year from October 24th to the 26th in Bloomington, Minnesota. Visit their website at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Thanks, everybody. Have a great finish to your week. Take care.
0: You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues that affect American national security. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, which is meeting this year from October 24th to the 27th at the Doubletree Hotel in Bloomington.
2: Feel so tense and worried all the time. Is this anxiety?
0: Mental Health Minnesota.